to me Confidential as a baby's cry Secret and moving has a love aside My love for you will always be Confidential to me I always love coming in after the fly because his music is just fantastic. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> I didn't know flies could be so good at, at being a DJ. Um, so you are listening to KKUP Cupertino 91.5 FM here in the Bay Area and beyond the Bay Area. Um, if you're somewhere else, you're listening on KKUP.org where we're streaming live all over the world. Um, I usually play a song at the beginning of my show, but um, we don't have time today, so I'm going to get right to it. Tonight's guest is Cedric Tillman, and Cedric Tillman is a pressmate of mine at Willow Books, but he holds a BA in English from UNC Char Charlotte and graduated from American University's creative writing program. Um, he's a Kavi Khanum Fellow, a two-time Pushcart Award nominee, and the former Nation Magazine, now Boston Review, Discovery Contest semifinalist. Um, his first book, or his debut collection, which is the one we're talking about, is called Lilies in the Valley. Um, and that was a semifinalist for a bunch of really great prizes, but eventually it was published by Willow Books in 2013. So here's my interview with... Cedric Tillman. Uh, the beginning of the show is a little choppy, but bear with us. It gets better. All right. So uh, tell me a little bit about yourself, Cedric. I mean, I know about you, but tell my listeners a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, well, <clears throat> I, um, I'm living in Charlotte uh, right now, Charlotte, North Carolina, mm -hmm. uh, and hoping to, I think I still feel the need to qualify. I always like North Carolina, because as big as we are now, I think we're like the 16th biggest city, but sometimes we go, Charlotte, Charlotte, where is that? Sometimes you still get that. Um, but uh, yeah, so I am uh, pretty much a country boy. I was born about, a east, about an hour and a half east of here, east of Charlotte, um, and uh, moved to the big city when I was very young, and so I uh, lived up here uh, most of my life, and then um, initially attended the University of Florida, left there. Came back home and finished at the uh, finished school here at uh, in Charlotte at UNC Charlotte and uh, worked here a couple years and decided I wanted to do an MFA and so um, got into American University's MFA program and uh, went up there got married and four days later moved up there <laughs> and uh, it was all a whirlwind. So so what do you do in uh, in Charlotte? So I am a proofreader and editor of uh, Newswire copy. Mm -hmm. And so what I do is uh, we get um, we get press releases in from uh, a lot of publicly traded and private companies mm -hmm. uh, like Bank of America and um, <clears throat> a lot of pharmaceutical companies up in the uh, in our research triangle area up around the, the, the all the colleges, Chapel Hill and, and, and NC State and all that stuff. And uh, so we, we're just the last set of eyes before that stuff hits the uh, newswire, hits the internet. So it's one of those things where it's very cool. You, um, you know, we have to um, pledge to not try to, you know, get rich off of the information we get. We're going to get insider information. So, uh, you know, it's an interesting gig. Um, but yeah, I've been doing that. So I, that's what I did for the two years before I went to DC for grad school and then uh -huh. when I came back <clears throat> I um I got my old job back as it turned out and I've been back there now 11 years so wow that is uh <clears throat> that's paid the bills to a large extent <laughs> well I mean you have to have the bills paid especially if you're a poet that's it yeah you got to have a real quote-unquote real gig you know especially if you're not in academia mm -hmm. and you know um I, I kind of have appreciated the perspective that I think and, and kind of distance that I've gotten by not being in academia, though it's not something I'm opposed to doing. It's just, uh, you know, kind of working at um, at, a, at a, just a regular gig. You kind of have a, you know, you kind of there's fodder, different fodder for mm -hmm. poems. 
thing. And right. So. And you're not really in an echo chamber. Like one of the things that I like, I also don't work in academia anymore. Um, <laughs> but one of the things I like is that is that you can actually take the kinds of concepts that you learn and think about and take them into the real world, which in some ways feels a little more active than sort of mm -hmm. living in an echo chamber. Not that academia is always an echo chamber, but sometimes it very much can be. Yeah, I was, um, my, uh, an old professor of mine, um, invited me back to her black poetry course, um, and, uh, back in, you know, May, the end of the semester. And we were talking about this and I was talking to her about how I had just recently read an article, um, about the, um, something like, I think the article something like that, like 98% of English teachers were, um, Democrats. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yeah, and, and that, and that mm -hmm. sounds about right to me, just, just, just mm -hmm. anecdotally. But I thought about, you know, how, um, you know, not being, you know, not, wor not working in academia allowed me to, you know, to encounter, uh, opinions that, you know, the, you know, us, that exist uh, in the world. Types, but yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, and so that's what I mean. Like, you know, you, you would run into, you'll, you'll have, you'll be challenged by different, uh, different opinions and, and you, you know, and maybe some different kind of poetry or, or experience comes out of that. And, um, yeah, we, that's something we talked about. <laughs> well, I, um, I, when I was in graduate school, I remember me and my friend went to this, uh, graduate, program party and I didn't hang around with the MFAers very much because I was working really hard uh, to survive right. and going to school um, and I remember talking to a woman that I had never really spoken to before but you know you grab a glass of wine and you start talking to people and I was saying how racist I felt that the city of Pittsburgh's people tended to be that I, I constantly mm -hmm. met people and they didn't and, and the kinds of encounters that I kept encountering were so in my opinion, racist. And, mm -hmm. and the girl looked at me and she just sort of blank eyed and she says here in, in Pittsburgh. <laughs> uh -huh. And I'm yeah. like, yeah, mm -hmm. yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. And it's you know, she had been a, a TA and she basically lived on campus. And I mean, the kind of racism I experienced experienced inside of the MFA was very different than the kind of racism, the overt racism that I experienced being a worker and being on the streets of Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. But, um, but it was just funny to me. And it made me realize that if you're not, if you're outside of the world of academia, you're experiencing a world that is not as safe in some ways. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's definitely, you know, and I, I, um, you know, think about it is <clears throat> outside of that realm though are all the people that um we want to and i guess when i say we uh, i guess i'm speaking of poets but inside of that um outside of academia are all the people that i think we purport to want to evangelize mm. in a sense with our poetry yeah and so you know while you know so that's why i i've, I've been torn about this idea about safe spaces because like i view a space like for instance like cave Canem, where you can um, and um, Kave Kanem, um you know what Kave Kanem yeah. is, but yes. for your listeners, uh, it's a black poetry workshop. Mm -hmm. That sort of thing where you can go in and everyone has a common experience and you can, you know, um, write to certain things and not and almost use a, a, a sort of shorthand. There's mm. this cultural, you know, and I, I would imagine Cantamundos like that and everything. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you, you can, it, there's just things you don't have to say. Right. However, because everybody knows them, but um, the people we want to uh, talk to aren't in these spaces. Mm -hmm. And so while that may be a safe space, I think the the people that we want to really talk to are not in those safe spaces. They're, they're out in the dangerous space. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think, um, you know, I think we have to um, write. I, I think that's where the work is to be done or to use the religious term that's where the evangelism is to be done uh -huh. is it's beyond the like-minded you know those of us that kind of think the same way about about and see the world in similar ways um how we can write our poet write write and kind of bridge gaps and and um and, t and obviously touch hearts and 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 con uh, and consciences uh, right um, you know, um and th they're they're out there they're not in our space uh and right. so it's kind of tough 
Yeah, no, and I think that's I think that's very interesting that you say that because um, in one of our previous conversations we were talking about the ability to when you're when you're around a group of people that have the same ideas as you, like us, like in Willow Books, Willow Books readings, for example, um, mm-hmm. we are allowed to sort of have these multifaceted experiences as people of color, and right. everyone sort of knows it. They know the joke, they get it, or they're <laughs> they're on the end. But right. when when you attend or when or in my experience, when I attend readings that are primarily uh, white or primarily academic and I'm sort of booked as the token um, Mexican or the token Chicana <laughs> and I go in, <laughs> I I choose I specifically choose poetry that I feel the readers uh, that will be easy for the readers that will <laughs> that will not uh, bring too much difficulty to my explanations so where I don't have to encounter <laughs> the kinds of conversations that I know you are exhausted with because I'm exhausted mm-hmm. with them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yeah. So. You know, I, um, and yeah, that's the, the poem selection at readings is, you know, yeah, you know, my, I think my, the truth is, is that you kind of go into it with, okay, how far am I pushing here? And, um, so I think what I turn to, and, and, you know, some of my poems are, are kind of funny. So, um, you know, I kind of try to balance it out. So it's kind of like, you know, um, it's like going to the dentist and they put that, uh, that's what, what the guy used to call sleep when I was young, they used to call it sleepy jelly. Um, as I, what disturbed me though, is that I got older, he kept calling it sleepy jelly. And I was like, dude, I'm, you know, I was eight back then. Now I'm, you know, I'm 16. Now you don't have to call it. That. Um, you put the sleepy jelly on, then they do the, the needle prick, you know, and numb you up. So, um, you know, so yeah, I mean, so that's kind of what the, you know, so the back and forth of the poem selection are, you know, let me, you know, let me, let me be a little fun and silly. Then let me, you know, kind of really go at, you know, maybe an issue of race or, um, you know, th- another thing I've been writing a lot about is, is, is guns or mm. something like that. So, yeah, so you kind of got to go back and forth. And uh, yeah, I, I definitely am aware of that de- depending on, and, and, you know, like, well, so at will at, when we were in LA at the AWP reading, then those could be different types of poems because we knew who would kind of be there. So I, I think I was, you know, it, it changes your space. But when I was reading recently with the North Carolina Poet Laureate, um, it's a really nice guy, Shelby mm-hmm. Stevenson. Um, he's he's 78. And so a lot of people came to see him. And I was, you know, I was kind of the extra guy. <laughs> and so I was like, now, mm-hmm. you know, let me, you know, I'm going to bob and weave with this, <clears throat> you know, um, but I got a very great very great reception and boy did they buy books i'm very appreciative (laughs) that's the best i've got to read i've got a reading tonight in san francisco (laughs) i've got a reading in san francisco Uh tonight and i'm like uh gosh take those books let's let's sell some books exactly please please (laughs) please someone buy them they're at discount price (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah right right yeah i'm old news already (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, you feel like, yeah, I mean, it's almost like, it, I, who was that? Well, someone was talking recently about um, reading the same things uh, <laughs> and getting to the point where they want to they read um, new stuff. They want to they get to the new book. Um, yeah. But, um, you know. Hey, you know, I feel that way too. But then I'm like, you know, hey, I got a, I got a box of books I need to get rid of. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> you know, so yeah, so let's, <laughs> so let's, you know, we'll just be focused here on this for a moment until until the next thing. Uh, comes along it, so so, yeah. so, ha- so is lilies in the valley is that your first book that is my first book and um lilies was my thesis um it was called originally my th- my graduation thesis in mm-hmm. 04 so nine years between when i graduated and the book was uh it's called a lily in the valley which is the the, basically the name of the song that um that the the um spiritual that the mm-hmm. title based on and then i just kind of tweaked it a little bit to lilies in the valley uh and um and then um yeah and then it came out in 2013 and that was you know when i graduated from um american university um i really felt like i was ready and i was like you know on the stuff and you know um i had i got uh, had gotten a um was a finalist or semi-finalist for the discovery award which by that time at that time was handed was done by the nation magazine but now it's boston mm. uh, boston mag uh what's it boston review 
Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, and uh, was in there some names of people that, you know, uh, well, classmate uh, Sandra Beasley, who's now her fourth book. And, you know, so, so I was like, so I was like really feeling myself and just thought it was a matter of time before I get published. And uh, I spent all spent about two years, a year and a half sending it out to to publication, you know, to a contest, spent a bunch mm-hmm. of money, mm-hmm. got no love got like a couple of nice letters back from people but probably i probably applied at least 20 to 30 contests and yeah. spent a bunch of money and uh so and uh you know as it turned out uh the book i, I met the editor-in-chief of willow um mm-hmm. our mutual publisher yeah um, i'm so thankful for willow i have to say um that they uh, you know have put the voices out into the world that have been out there because even though we're a small press, I think I, I think it's very evident that we uh, that could easily be on you know you know these you know big fancy presses. I know talent level I think is really there, but the um, so yeah I met him I met Randall yeah. Horton mm-hmm. at Cave Conum and didn't know he was the editor of. Um, of uh, editor in chief of Willow, and then the following spring, I went to a Cave Conum South um, uh, weekend workshop with Kwame Dawes, uh, Frank Walker, and Pat- uh, was it Patricia? Yeah, Patricia Smith. Uh-huh. And um, so we had, uh, and and I met a reader for Willow that mm-hmm. weekend, and um, um, and she was <laughs> she asked to see my manuscript, and she's like, I said, have you ever seen any of my poetry? said no but you are funny as hell in class <laughs> uh, and so <laughs> so that's how it got and so she actually read it and passed it along to Randall and uh he sat on it about a year and a half actually and I started to Facebook uh at that time I started to tweak it the tweaking manuscript and it got a couple of you know semi-finalists and finalist placings and he got back to me, man, you know, man, I've been meaning to get back with you, man, my bad. I didn't think we were really ready at the time. You know, send me what you, send me, you know, your newest version of it, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh-huh. So I sent it, and um, so I first sent it him in, like, May of 10, and we, he basically uh, said we that, that Willow would publish it, like, November of 11. So nice. it was, like, a year and a half. <laughs> yeah, so that is, uh, so this is the first one, and uh, I am, I'm working on, this, on the second one, and Actually, just uh, in the last couple of weeks here, um, I did uh, got the semifinalist mention for the Cleveland State University uh, Prize. Congrats. And uh, last night, I um, got word that I was a semifinalist in the um, Saturnalia um, Poetry Prize. Uh, nice. So, so, yeah, the, the new manuscript is entitled In My Feelings. Mm-hmm. Because that's that's where I be in my poems. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, so far it's going pretty pretty good. Um, so out of I think the four contests I've heard back from, I've gotten a a, a, a semi mention mention in in two of the four. So I'm pretty encouraged about the direction of it. Well, that's good. I mean, that's really good. And you know, I have to say I really enjoy your poetry and this book in in particular. Um, but I also. Um, your your poem that you had sent to me when I was doing the poetry for Ferguson, which was mm-hmm. this like ephemeral attempt to do what I could as a poet to help in ways mm-hmm. that I thought I could, right? We we all just sort of sent poems and put them out into the universe. And yeah. the poem that you wrote about um with Trayvon Martin, mm-hmm. it was the first it it was the first and this this might be telling about my reading, but it was the first time that I encountered such honesty about uh, such honesty reflected from a black man and that Mm -hmm. I felt palpable fear for you and Mm -hmm. for black men in America because I realized in that moment when I read your your poem that there was almost nothing that you that anyone could do especially black men to alter whatever the course is in front of them. Mm-hmm. And you've yeah. written about that, and that's terrifying to me. Um, can you speak on that a little bit? Sure. Um, you know, I, um, I, was, I had the opportunity to, to uh, speak to a Martin Luther King, uh, like a commemoration or um, type thing 
I guess it was the first of last year uh-huh. of 15. And um, I told the audience that, you know, what what's happening when in these police encounters and all of these, these things um, that are going on is, you know, you can't see, you can't, for me, I can't see someone like Philando Castile or um, Alton Sterling and not see slave ships. Mm. I don't, I go back to that and people will say, you know, particularly white people will be uncomfortable with that and say, well, you know, well, why you got to bring that up? <laughs> but, <laughs> but the thing is, is that we are living with the, um, what I view to be the quite natural results of, um, you know, of the slave trade and, and, and Jim Crow and, um, ongoing discrimination after those things had gone away. Um, if someone had had the foresight to look to to kind of go from that time when the, when we were first brought here to now, I don't see why um, why you would think anything else would be going on. Specifically, um, you know, yes, it's true that black people commit more crime, but the but the issue is why, and that's mm-hmm. the question that never that's so uncomfortable for people to get into. Why are we um, so policed? Why mm-hmm. do we? When when did we become a people? Who who or what made us a people mm. that had to be policed? Who um, put us into uh, high poverty, low education environments, and then expected us to excel in a meritocracy? Which is just, <laughs> which is what, you know. So you know um, these are all natural results. Um, you know, and so and so my point is that. Whenever uh, a cop comes to, uh, uh, you know, a call involving the, the average black person, you're, you're coming with hundreds of years of, of history, background, assumptions, fear. And there's this deep, I think, reservoir of, of white guilt about what was done to black people in this country, which, they, which a lot of white people are uncomfortable admitting. Right, um, right. But they and, and but they bring it, and that's why they pull triggers quicker, right? Um, and that's even you know cops in general. I mean, you know, um, you know, it's not just uh, not just black. Co- I mean, not just white cops. Generally, it's white cops. But you know, cops of all colors, I think, bring this fear of black people to their uh, encounters because they have a perception of grievance mm. historical grievance and they and and even if you talk to them and like you might talk to a white cop and be like and they, and they, they don't they don't they think that oh well you know that stuff shouldn't still have an effect on you they really do think it does like they really do think but they they don't because to say that it does to say that that history has an effect is to say that there would have to be some sort of restorative action or healing, and that's not an option. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, that's called reparations for, you know, that's called, and, and it's certainly at least called affirmative action. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, I mean, the, the most tepid form of, um, of, yeah, of uh, reparations. Yeah, yeah, uh, you know, or acknowledgement. Oh, yeah. That, um, something. So, um, you know, I think um, with that poem, um, I, I, so what I was telling that audience is that, um, there's just so much fear um, that's brought to, I think, encounters with um, with black people. And I think a lot of times we, I think sometimes we don't properly embrace the criminality. We just say, yeah, we are. We do commit these crimes. That's not the issue. We do what undereducated uh, poor people do. Oh, yeah. White people do this too. Uh, you know, um, you know. You know, in places like West Virginia, where you know they, they're economically depressed, they have the same behaviors. It's not a racial thing. Right. It's that why and and what system was set in place to specifically make us those people who were uh, so so poorly educated and so discriminated against, um, and that's what we need to talk about. And so, um, so as I think about Trayvon, um, you know, you know, Zimmerman had a perception of him. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, he, just, he brought that brought that to that encounter. And I think, um, you know, not to prejudge the situation, but I, I fear that, you know, that's what we're going to come out with in, in the Castile situation is that um, 
this guy looked the part. And so when you reach for a wallet, you know, you look, and you've got a gun in your, in your, uh, you know, waist or wherever he had it. Um, it's scary. It's, you assume that, um, you know, and that's tough. This is going to be a tough, it's tough to deprogram fear. You know what I mean? It's not just as simple as part of it is procedural, you know, and Mm -hmm. we need better procedures from police. But part of it is psychological. And that is tough. And but I think it's it's easier if you're willing to admit why you got those biases and how Mm. they came about. And that is what we can't get to. It's people don't want to admit that they bring those biases to these encounters. Well, our cultural our cultural consciousness in America doesn't allow us to admit the kind of racism that exists in the foundation. Like we Mm -hmm. don't as America, we don't want to admit that slavery um, for your people and Mm -hmm. um, the kinds of laborious slavery that still exists for my people are 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 foundational necessities in the american dream or in the process of the american dream and and those Mm -hmm. that our backs our backs and our bodies are what have built this this american culture this consumer culture this economic whatever all of this Mm -hmm. and if america itself were to admit it in some kind of national and um implementable way then mm-hmm. they would be admitting something that's very disgusting, and America doesn't mm-hmm. want to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, I was reading a book a few years ago called The Debt, um, and it's called The Debt, What America uh, Owes mm-hmm. to Black. Mm-hmm. And uh, Russell Robinson was the writer, and it's very, very eloquent. Uh, you know, he talks about, I've never been, I'll be honest with you, I've never been one who, who pushed a lot for, you know, things like, reparations mainly because it's not that it's not that it's not clearly just um mm. that you know but it's just that i'm um i tend to be i'm, more, I'm very practical and mm-hmm. i know that that's it's un, it's unlikely but that's what make infuriates me about things about you know the more so much more tepid responses to um to historical racism like like affirmative action or like when mm. we have this student suing the university of texas because uh, she had to go to LSU instead of Texas, <laughs> um, you know, and stuff like that, which is, is really, you know, um, that, that's that's what really irks me. But, you know, in, in his book, he talks about he actually kind of scolds people like me because he says, you know, you know, I know you don't think it's possible, but it but, you know, it, but if it's righteous, then, you know, then that, that's what you that's the side you ought to be on. That's the side he, he's on. So uh, I certainly um you know, I certainly see that. And that book is called The Debt by Russell Robinson? That's right. The Debt, uh, the Debt, What America Owes to Blacks by Russell Robinson. Very good read. Very persuasive read. And at one point, he even uh, tries to just, he, 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 he takes a typical black life starting in like pre-slavery. And he tries to trace, he, he, this is his own sort of, in his mind, he, he, he traces the life, the generations of a, of a of one black life, right? And he just and he just shows the ways in which that life, um, you know, is disadvantaged relative to uh, you know white life in America, and shows why this person might like develop heart disease and die earlier, oh, or right. you know, just different stressors, um, d- lack of of, of uh, health care and opportunities that would lead to this person having a, you know, an attenuated lifespan, um, which I, th- I think is very, valuable, very, something really deep to think about, um, the, all the ways in which, um, this, this system that we, that we live in just, just sort of shortens horizons just a little bit, you know? So when at the end of the day, you know, oh, it's a three or four year lifespan difference, but you know, something, so many things along the way happen to, to add up to that, to that discrepancy between say white and black life expectancy and stuff like that. Right. So um, it's a really powerful book. Yeah. I mean, those things are really important and, 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 you know, I, I really didn't wake up into the world of understanding my position in, in, in the um, discussion of race until I went into graduate school because I had lived in California and the race, the kind of racism that exists here is a very sort of um, 
latent. It's it's a structural racism. So like uh, in small towns where I grew up, the the town is mostly uh, employ employs mostly uh, white people or uh, is run mostly by rich ranchers and. If you're mm -hmm. a Mexican who's been able to get a job or to move up, it's because you've assimilated and you've left your culture behind you and you sort of like ignore mm -hmm. that. And so the kinds of experiences there were, were different. But when I moved to Pittsburgh, it was the first time in my life that people, you know, just straight out of their mouth right to my face would ask me where I was from and... Mm -hmm. Uh, was my family from Mexico? Did did your family run across the border? Did they swim across mm -hmm. the border? Are you mm -hmm. are you a welfare baby? Are you? I mean, things that that I had mm -hmm. never heard in my life. Um, mm -hmm. Even at the university, being encountered by someone who was in the program asking me if I was the affirmative action choice, and mm -hmm. all these other things. Mm -hmm. And so it was like suddenly I came face to face with a racism that I think was so blatant that it was hard to <laughs> ignore that. Oh, mm -hmm. wow. I am a brown woman, like a very brown woman. Mm -hmm. And in being so, there are a lot of things that are not available to me. Yeah. And I think too, one of the things that, you know, one way to get rid of this fear and it's going to be a generational deal, but, um, you know, does, what what we'd like to say, what I'd like to is to is for America to make the decision that, um, you know, we want to um, ameliorate or, or eliminate the the um, the differences that our differential in treatment has caused in you. We mm -hmm. want to address those. We're, and but the problem is you can't do it until you are willing to say this is what was done and this is how it affected you so like you said if you're not willing to admit that then you can't progress so but what if that was ever done then you know as i was telling someone the other day one of my white friends on facebook I went to high school with that you know we want to the country needs to view us as assets mm. that's the thing and like we have to be viewed as and, and and this is all all people but you know particularly those of us who are you know, discriminate against and these, you know, as I told, I was telling them, I said, look, you know, white people have a 20 something, I think it's 22, 23 times the average net worth of the average black household. And mm -hmm. I can assure you that <clears throat> if you were to be able to go to a plantation and look at who was in the fields and who was on the porch, that that had nothing to do with work ethic. Mm -hmm. See, so, you know, so we know it's not that you guys work 23 times harder than us. You know, so that's the type of stuff that, you know, um, we, you know, we know that even like with police interactions that, um, you know, white people use drugs more uh, equal uh, at an equal amount, but are arrested a lot less. You mm -hmm, know, mm -hmm. so, you know, these are things we know. And so we have, you know, it's it's very hard to, you know, you get to have a you just have a fact based discussion with stats <laughs> you I know. know and then and then you say and then the next question is then how is difference created are we uh genetically inferior or uh or uh, there's only two options either we are genetically inferior and unable to uh to adapt to environments or we are uh or we or this was caused or we were essentially engineered our our in our the way in which we don't match up socioeconomically was engineered through policy and law right. and they you know when you have this discussion with people they're never comfortable saying the for the former that you know just it's genetics but then they're never comfortable um, saying the latter thinking, right right saying the latter and thinking about how what kind of perhaps quite radical um but just things would have to be undertaken to 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 try to just work on these gaps you know what i mean so yeah. it's it's like Something it's one or the other, and I would just rather people be honest with me because, you know, what do you you know what do you think of me? You know, I right. mean, that, that, just tell me what you think of me. I mean, do you think that there's something about your origin that would put into the same situations my people were put into? Do you think that your people would have overcome those environments in a better way? And if so, why? Right. You know, <laughs> and there's never an answer for that. So it's un it's un it's, it's just a, a crazy situation. No, I know. And, you know, I've had these conversations. Um, I have them actually pretty often. And and like I, like I said, I'm not part of academia. So I tend to have these conversations with people that don't don't normally have these conversations. I was at mm -hmm. a at a, a ranch party of a friend's 
and I ran into a woman that I knew um, from an, a club that I had been part of and we were talking and she was saying how sad it was to see all of these little Mexican kids dressed up like gangsters and cholos and wearing red and mm -hmm. all this stuff um, coming into her store and their parents are supposedly poor, but they have iPhones and all that kind of that kind of stuff that we hear all the right. time. And I, and I yeah. said to mm -hmm. her, I looked at her and I said to her, if a child is raised in an aquarium where all of the surrounding details are as you see them, like those are the things that they see, they see um, people dressed in red, they see the baggy pants, they see that they mm -hmm. and, and they are recreated in that world. They don't know that there is another world that exists. One. Two, this is a cultural thing. It's a, a cultural class and it's a culture of violence and it's a culture of gangs. So those things, that child and that mother and the father, they don't have options and what they're doing to their child is not perpetuating poverty consciously. They're just perpetuating mm -hmm. their culture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I was telling someone, too, that, uh, that so much of the, the ways in which we don't, you know, assimilate into uh, – <clears throat> you're talking about the baggy pants. Like, yeah. I mean, I, I think about – I mean, you know, I see you know, black women with the sort of, you know, loud hair, say the red hair, the blue hair, <laughs> the baggy <laughs> pants. Folks. But uh, – even some of my family members that do the Facebook Live uh, stuff and then, you know, do some stuff that I'm you know, not terribly proud of. All of this stuff, to me, is on a, you know, is a reaction to not feeling seen, mm. um, not feeling, you know, this is, this is, I see your khaki pants and nice button up and you know what? You didn't prepare me for that. Mm -hmm. I'm not, that's not what, if you wanted me to be that. And you would have had to have dictated through law and policy. You couldn't have, you know, made my great, great, great grandfather. Uh, you couldn't have made it illegal for him to to read. Um, mm -hmm. You couldn't have, you know, this this would have had to have been a generational investment. I mean, you couldn't, you know, make me swear on a different Bible. Mm -hmm. You could, I mean, there's all these things when I'm, or you would have let me testify on jurors. Like, there's all these things that that were that were done that um, add up to. I'm not part of your your culture, and yep. it's an indictment of of the differential in, in environments. That's that's all it is. It's, so these people are saying, you know, no, I'm not. No, I don't do conventional stuff because you yeah. didn't, I'm not of your culture. Um, and even and, if they even if they tried, there would be something phenotype typically or something in their voice that would indicate a difference of culture, and they would still be mm -hmm. othered by the by the dominant culture. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so. You know, I, I hear people complain about those things, and you know, like when they say the stuff about the cell phone and all that stuff. You know, one, it, it's very tough to be part of a um, of a society where you know that there's a you're aware of other people's comfort and that you don't have it. You know, yeah. And um, there's this whole other world out there that um, you know, Dr. King talks about this in his writings that it, it causes frustration because you and and that more recently, Tanahashi uh, Coates and mm -hmm. and between the world and me, world mm -hmm. and me talks about this that there's this whole world you know there's access to it and you just can't. It's like why why don't I have access to it? And you live with that all the time, and then you have a, you you engender a resentment towards the people. Oh, yeah. who, have that other life and you don't even know like if you talk to one of these brothers on the street they're not they're not even going to have that sort of insight into it because they right. they don't get taught it in school and quite and a lot of times they're in front of i mean white teachers who can't again can't admit that to them right. so um you know it, it, so they don't they won't know why they really hate white people but they do because right. they feel like they have something you guys did that I don't have, and, and you're in on a secret that I'm not in on. And uh, it's very – it's hurtful, um, especially in a, in a country where, you know, where all of our, our very well, uh, well-written platitudes about, you know, equality and stuff like that. You know, you, and you place that against the backdrop of, of the reality, and it's just – you know, I think as Tavis Smiley said, he said, we are just trying to make America live up to the promise of its founders. Yeah. And that's, um, that's, that's, that's hard work. Now, I, I completely agree. And I'm really grateful for this conversation. But you know what? We should get to some poetry. Will you read some poems sure. from your book? 
Yes, absolutely. And not from your book. Um, it doesn't matter to me. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, and I'm sorry that we kind of went off. On no, that. you don't have to be sorry. I mean, this is kind of what my radio show is about. It's about giving opportunity. I think I think poets, um, especially with the co- concepts of race and social socioeconomics, um, I think poets are, are very sensitive. And also, we uh, if you're a good poet, which many of us are, people I interview are, um, you're a researcher of the things that you specialize in. And you know yeah. the things that you specialize in and you write about them. And, and I think that it's important to have these conversations. And if people don't like it, well, they can call the station and talk to me. And I'd love to talk to them. <laughs> oh, man. But I think yeah. our, our, listeners, no. our listeners at KKUP are very open. They're very loving. And um, yeah. a lot of them are, you know, they're, I, I hope that they enjoy these conversations. So Yeah, well, I hope so, too. And um, I'm very appreciative to, them, to, uh, for you, for do, to you for doing this and for, to them for listening in and, um, you know, just being hopefully open-minded and open-hearted about um, our perspective right. on these things. Um, so you mentioned the Trayvon poem. I think I'll just maybe read that one sure. uh, initially, and, and then we uh, can go elsewhere. Sure. Uh, this is called Thin Air for Trayvon. One, it's probably better to run so there's someone left to tell our side of the stories. But I like to imagine that I am brave that I'll opt for the fight if I am ever contentedly minding my own business, then hounded suddenly by a man who is decent enough most days, anonymously regressing through life toward the mean with treacherous designs on significance. Two, a couple rows back, a little girl says, Mommy, I'm scared the hundredth time. I'm scared, Mommy, Mommy, I'm scared, but of course we are all scared, baby, though I would prefer your fears. I do envy how your reasons to be afraid get to differ from mine. I am scared of death, certain deaths, mostly a sudden falling towards earth, a violent loss of altitude and old turbulence on my journey through this tense, persistent air, a fear of descent, because young men I know collapse into complicit skies every day, and I fear I am too much like them, that I won't get to see much before I land. Three. Everything is noticed, if not inquired after. Everyone is touched as we brush past the wind in a hurry for impact. The blood is thick with conspiracy, and everyone knows, but not everyone can feel. So some people don't notice the virtue leaving. Some people say what left wasn't virtue. Four, I live in America, and I tell my son the streetlights mean I don't plan to see his mother flailing her arms beyond the embrace of ushers charged with keeping this much of us out of the casket. Five, the black president pronounces it Traven. The name is off the tongue quicker. The sound dies away faster. But it's probably not another failed attempt at establishing his American bona fides. It's just the way he talks. Mm -hmm. Six. We need to get the, the bottom of it, have a full and thorough investigation. We have a criminal justice system for a reason, and I hope justice is served. It's in everyone's best interest that this be dealt with in a timely fashion so the public can rest assured that law enforcement will palaver the et cetera's, ensuring that we can so on and so forth. Mm. Um, and um, I will read... Uh, um, you know, I well, mean, and the and the 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 afterword of that poem is that is that it it's not changing. Yeah, and that's what, so you don't have to write a new poem. That's why you know sometimes I've seen every so every every other week or so another there's another police shooting and and so I you know I see uh, you know there's responses to it in poetry and anthologies and um you know people they call for these and I'm and I'm like you know what I mean I'm just I'm just going to read my Trayvon poem. Because yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean, like you know, because it, it just it just applies. Yeah, and, it, it doesn't. Uh, you know, change. I, just, yeah. I can't do it, and I don't want to mind go back to that mind emotionally every time. You know, I mean, it's, they're different stories, and I, I really appreciate that people are writing those poems. Um, you know, but it just gets, you know, I mean, it gets kind of tiring, and yeah. uh, it's just it's tough stuff to have to dig back up every time and try to say something different because you. You know, you know why we're in these situations. You, you know how we how we got to the world we're in, and uh, you know. So it's like God. Uh, anyway, I'm glad that people are 
are are still writing those poems. Um, and um, yeah, but we, but but we, the poem for Trayvon, the poem. You're right. The poem it still applies. You you can just plug in different names, unfortunately. <laughs> right. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Um. Let's see. Um, did, uh, I don't know if you had any particular ones you wanted me to read, but I was gonna. I, I have a couple. That, yeah, but, go uh, ahead. Go ahead, please. Okay. Cool. So, um, I want to read the. I want to read the All American because that tend to lead off all of my readings with this because um, I think it grounds people in, um, you know, the fact that I'm 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 pulling for us. I'm pulling for America. I just I just think there's certain conversations that have to be had. Um, and um, <clears throat> so this is called the, the All-American, okay. and the epigraph is, my mind is American. My thoughts are the product of my American breeding. One, I am an all-American boy, and I'm proud to be an American. I am of the finest American stock, pure breed of those that bred me. My black hair, my brown eyes, the way I see through Chinese frames into American mirrors and Japanese watch faces is beauty. Two, I am a fan of every All-American team. I am a fan of pure All-American teams. From day one, I was the Cowboy fan, the Yankee fan, the Carolina fan. I am a fan of nothing ignoble. I am a fan of the teams people like me should be fans of. I am a fan of the teams that a man would be a fan of if he's been where I've gone, if he's from where I'm from. There are fans of other teams, and I cannot understand them. I do not understand how you, other fan, cannot want the win I want for us. Three, I was born in a hamlet. In Rockingham, my American mother, her hair, a science project mushroom cloud, bore me to an American father, his hair, a science project mushroom cloud. I remember the nurse, the baby blue of the thing she cleaned my nose with, its rippled bulb like a seashell. I remember my funny reflection in her silver ball earring. She sat me, new and viscous, in daddy's lap. He kissed me like I'd never grow. He hugged me, held me like I'd never grow. I shall never be so new in the coming tomorrows as I was that day. I am not perfect, and I will not be refurbished. Four, the Americans who go to church go to church with me. I am Baptist. I am African Methodist Episcopalian Zion. I am probably African Methodist Episcopalian without the Zion. I am non-denominational. I stayed out of the closet the skeptics made me for their convenience. I listened to them. They forbade me wine. They forbade me women. They took in wine. They took in women. They took in men. I am a Christian in America, and I am very often tried, but rarely by a jury of peers. Five, I am not an atheist. I am not an atheist. I am not an atheist. I am not, you know what I'm saying, an atheist. But you are an all-American. I am not good at line breaks, but you are an all-American. I am not Catholic. I am not Catholic, but you are an all-American. I am not a member of the nation. They are Americans. I am in the top 1% of their 85% or in the top 1% of their 10%. But that in me, which would be 5%, is ravaged by my pure breeding, my cocky Americanism, that happily pervasive disease. And my God is the one I experience most, the one I know best, until all else is hearsay and pagan. Six. The All-Americans won't tell me what to say. The All-Americans will tell me how I should say what they think I should keep to myself. And we will throw bowls in the molten pot until whatever lacks virtue and the not used and the not me's is sloughed off like impurity so that something like heaven is within reason and the first cause blesses the nation. And I should say, I usually start that off by by explaining that the the references to the 85, 10, and 5% uh, reference the um, Nation of Islam Mm -hmm. uh, idea that, you know, 85% of us are essentially, um, you know, our lives are run by this sort of oligarchic 10%. (laughs) um, And then... Five percenters are the, or what they call the five percent nation, are the people who are aware of what the ten percent is doing to the eighty-five percent, and <laughs> try to kind of, you know, tell people, hey, you know, it's it's interesting because it's not unlike things that we talk about that that's outside of, you know, that that there's a, you know, a group of people kind of running things, and that people yeah. aren't 
uh, wares, you know, of what's going on. So it's, it's a very um, <clears throat> it's a, that nation of Islam thing. And then the um, the not using the not me's. I just jacked that from um, Walt Whitman's song of myself. Because yeah. um, this was um, this was a a response to a um, it, this was a a workshop uh, thing in workshop in grad school. That mm-hmm. poems. I mean, we had to write like a long sequence poem, and um, and I was reading that poem reading song of myself at that time and um this is sort of a mini version of song of myself i think so um yeah, yeah so you know i want to read a i want to read a love poem okay and i want to do that i mean and it's gonna I, be on the radio so you know oh that's oh that's where <laughs> that's where love poems need to be yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> um not really a love poem but just a an infatuation poem or mm-hmm. something say so, yeah where is that poem Oh, uh, where is it? Yes, okay. Um, since you're doing some editing. Yeah, don't worry about it. Anyway. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, um, this poem is called Slow Dance. Uh, and um, the epigraph is a, is a list of, of good songs. <laughs> um, so, um, soundtrack. One, Slow Dance, R. Kelly. Two, Slow Jam, Midnight Star. Three, Red Light Special, TLC. Four, Slow Dancing in a Burning Room, John Mayer. Five, Wildflower, New Birth. Tonight, lest she become merely a quick tremor of air. And because she is something he wants to learn assiduously. Palms pressed lightly over the taut swell of arch. The pressure of fingertips up and down seeking a rhythm from the slender shoulders to the straight of her spine like something sought for in a dark room, hurriedly, desperately. The closeness of her embrace testifies to comfort, a young faith in the sudden discipline of hands fretting soft scratches of need into the neck of her mandolin hips. And there is no governor for the heart rate. The breastplate is merely translucent. Breathing is rationed to achieve cool, trying to convince her the throbbing in his ribs is a false positive. But while her hand and head rest on his shoulder like, you are my lady, and while a beauty mark just over the rise of her lip is a dark moon easily eclipsed and revealed by teeth, and while the shea butter scent of dark revolutions inhabit his temple like praise, the man knows he has not been able to stop the swoon hasn't managed the depth of the dive, preferring to yield to a useful sort of weakness, anxious only for the notion of the moment passing uneulogized, a mind absent the memory, how her body was the contour of a craving. <laughs> yeah. People have been there. People have been there. <laughs> Good one. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Let's see. You know, you tell a poet to read poems, you know. You're gonna I know. To, you know what? I'm going to read. How about I read one from the new manuscript? Okay. Sounds and, good. Uh, yes. Yeah, so, shameless plug of In My Feelings. So this is called um, Tread on Me. And um, it's kind of speaking of our um, gun issue and, and violence issue. Okay. Um. And um, in this poem, there's an allusion to a um, internet service providers and ISP and, and how they um, uh, – this corporate idea that we have now where some of these uh, municipalities are trying to have their own internet, but the companies are saying, no, you have to get it through us. And AT&T won't let a place like Chattanooga, Tennessee have its own cable. Tread on me. We had the funeral for my freedom last night. The right to life was 19 years old. Freedom pulled a trigger and killed my freedom because freedom trumped my freedom, is more precious than my freedom. My freedom died for your freedom. Didn't enlist, but it died for this country, by this country. Guns don't kill freedom. Freedom kills freedom. The other day, the city said I could watch my freedom bleed out real cheap. Said they'd take my taxes, let me see my freedom bleed out for cheap, but freedom sued the city. Said I didn't have that kind of freedom. ISP Freedom said I could feel free to pay them thirty nine ninety five a month 
for the privilege of seeing freedom bleed out on my PC assured me I'd get my money's worth, that freedom would see to it. The city infringed on freedom's freedom to bind me. I think I have to get more freedom if I want to be free. Freedom don't look good on my freedom. See how it lies there, gashed through the body armor? My freedom was in tech school, just welding, just HVAC. My freedom had a college ID, but I wish it had a freedom permit. The only thing freer than a gun with a bullet in the chamber is the freedom pointing it at freedom. Freedom breeds easier after it's loaded in AR-15. Free to be badass, free to stand its ground. Feel that? All the heat and air around an idea? Freedom breeds like this, wishes somebody would try to stop it from breathing the way it breeds. The constitution of a semi-automatic's freedom makes it easy to hyperventilate. <laughs> so. You're listening to KKUP Cupertino 91.5 FM in the Bay Area and beyond the Bay Area at kkup.org. My interview was with Cedric Tillman, who's the author of Lilies in the Valley, which is available through Willow Books, but also through Cedric himself. So you can uh, find Cedric Tillman, the poet, on all kinds of different places, Twitter, on Facebook, and um, on Goodreads as well. Um, thank you for listening. This is Out of Our Minds, the second longest running poetry radio show in America with me, Rochelle Escamilla, a.k.a. Poetita. Um, I'm going to play some Lauren Hill on the way out. And then I will be back in two weeks, in a couple of weeks, because um, my husband and I are going on a little vacation and there's a jazz um, marathon that's coming up. So you'll have instead of poetry, you'll have jazz, which isn't a bad thing. So I'll see you in a couple weeks or you'll hear me in a couple weeks. And uh, thanks for listening. Extending across the atlas, I begat this Flipping in together on the dirty mattress You can't match this, rapper slash actress More powerful than two Cleopatra's Bomb graffiti on the tomb of Nefertiti MCs ain't ready to take it to the Serengeti My rhymes is heavy like the mind of Sister Betty El Boogie sparks with stars and constellations Then came down for a little conversation Adjacent to the king, fear no human being Roll with cherubims to Nassau Coliseum Now hear this mixture with hip-hop meets scripture Develop a negative into a positive picture Now everything, everything is everything What is meant to be, will be, what is meant to be, will be, and I
seems. Sometimes it seems. We'll touch that dream. We'll touch that but dream. But things come slow and not at all. They come slow, yeah. And the ones on top won't make it stop. So convinced that they might fall. Let's love ourselves and we can't fail. To make a better situation. Spring. 